will remain standing and let's each take out our copy of the scriptures and I'm going to have you turn this morning to Psalm 130, Psalm 130. A short psalm, just eight verses. Follow along with me as I read them. Psalm 130, and this is the word of the living God. Let us give heed to it as it is read. A song of ascents. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Let's pray. Lord, we ask for your blessing upon the preaching and the hearing of your word this morning. We pray, Father, that we would rejoice in the things that we hear this day. And Lord, we we do ask that you would overcome the weakness of the one who preaches with your strength. And may your spirit work in this time, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And you can all be seated. Well, the book of Psalms is a unique book in the Bible. It is, has been referred to, rightly so, as the songbook of of the church, the songbook of Israel, particularly in the Old Testament there. That's what it was. Um, and it perhaps more than any other book as the, the writers of the various psalms, the, the songwriters, the lyricists, the poets uh, put down these words that we read, words inspired as much as any other words in the Scripture by God himself, breathed out by him for us. The Psalms, because of its nature, perhaps more than any other book in the Bible, show us ourselves. It shows us through the the Psalms that that are written, the Psalms that we read, the rapturous highs at times of the the blessing of the Lord to the, the valley, the valley of the shadow of death, it literally says at one point, and places of despair that the psalmist expresses despair even of the love of God from prayers that the Lord would bless the people to prayers that the Lord would utterly destroy his enemies. They're all here. Emotions worn like a heart on the sleeve of the various authors of the various psalms. So the psalms are very helpful for us because, as I say, we see ourselves in there. Any place you find yourself, you'll find it in one of the Psalms. You'll find it expressed. And so the Psalms are 
particularly helpful for God's people throughout the, pa- the ages as we go through things that are in many ways similar to what the psalmist went through, though in many ways different, in many ways the same. Many of the songs of the Psalter are sad songs. They're songs of despair, songs of great lamentation, lamenting, crying out. In fact, the most common type of psalm in in the Psalter are the lament songs. But there's a common theme that runs through all of them, even through those psalms of lamentation, a theme that is the theme of hope in the Lord. Confidence that the Lord would bless his people. Confidence that his, that his people, that, that his face rather, would shine upon them. That he would save them from their enemies. No matter how big or how strong or how many those enemies might be. Even those lament psalms end typically with a statement of renewed hope in the Lord God of Israel. The psalm that's before us this morning is no exception. It is a, a, one of a group of psalms, Psalm 120 through 134, that as the text here at the very beginning, even before the first verse told us, is a song of ascent, a song of, of going up. These are songs, there's a group of psalms that would be recited, that would be sung by God's people as they went up to Jerusalem, and because Jerusalem sits on a hill, you always went up to Jerusalem, whether, whatever direction you're coming from. But there is a group of psalms that were recited as people went up to Jerusalem for one of the, the three main pilgrim feasts of Israel that God had given to them, the Feast of Passover and of Pentecost and of Tabernacles. Now Hebrews reminds us, the book of Hebrews reminds us that as we come to worship, that we have come to Mount Zion. As we have ascended the hill of the Lord this morning, as we have joined in the great company of the redeemed before the throne of God this morning, we also then can encourage one another with this song of ascents. There's certainly plenty of reason for us too. For this psalm speaks of that great interest of the Christian, that greatest of Christian duties, that greatest of Christian blessings, and that is to hope in the Lord. Let's read it, uh, or we've just read Psalm 130, and now we want to look at it. It's very crisply structured, but we're not going to get too much into the structure. What I want to focus on this morning is what it teaches us. And that's basically this, that we should hope in the Lord, for in Him we have abundant redemption. That's the the point of Psalm 130. And it does that by teaching us several things. The first is that this psalm teaches us to cry out to God. Specifically, to cry out to Him in times when it is most needful when we are in the midst of our deepest troubles. This will come as no surprise to any of you, but the Christian life is full of ups and downs. The Christian life is full of good times and bad times. 
of highs and lows, of mountaintops and of deep valleys, chasms at times, right? They come in many forms. They come through times when we struggle with weakness. That could be physical weakness. It could be spiritual weakness. When we struggle with lack of faith. Christians struggle with lack of faith. We can struggle with discouragement. Approaching and sometimes crossing the line into despair. Is anyone discouraged this morning? We can find trials in regard to our physical health, the health of others, in provision, in jobs, issues with jobs, finances. At times we lose loved ones. And at times we are troubled because of our loved ones that have rejected God and continue to. We can have troubled marriages. Many people have troubled marriages, troubled relationships, persistent sins, just so many things. We could go on and on. And it is out of such a a chasm of, of desperation that the psalmist writes today, which opens with a plea to God in verses 1 and 2. He says, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. And again, we can be in a deep place. You might be in a deep place right now. The word depth there, when it says, out of the depths I cry to you, that's a a word that pictures an overwhelming flood of water. Psalm 69.2 says, I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters, and the floods sweep over me. Or we think of Jonah, who was literally cast uh, into the depths. If you've ever been wading in a lake or maybe at the ocean or something and, and stepped into some part of that body of water that you thought was shallow, only to find suddenly that there's no bottom especially if you're not a great swimmer and you're suddenly in, well, literally in over your head, you understand a very scary place. Back in the the beaches of Southern California where I grew up, we had to be careful of riptides that could very easily take you very quickly and take you out to sea if we're not careful. Uh, very quickly carrying someone from a place of sure footing out into deep and dangerous waters. That's the place of the psalmist, a place with no, no bottom. But the psalmist recognizes that we have a place of firm footing. We have a place for a sure remedy. Like when you are struggling after you've stepped off that bottom into a deep place and you feel around with your feet and you finally your tippy toes touch on the ground, And you go, oh good, I'm back on on solid ground. That's what this is like. And beloved, let us learn from the psalm this morning the proper course that we should take. Take counsel from the psalmist's words as to the remedy of your soul in such times as that. He says, out of the depths I cry to you. 
Whatever your need, whatever your sorrow, whatever your weakness, whatever your sin, cry out to God from whatever depths you find yourself in. Even in the address here, we find hope already. In a, in a very small way, we find it, but in a very wonderful way, in a very sure way. We find here a, a source of hope, an anchor for our soul. Even here we are assured that we have an audience with God. Not because we're able to demand anything, but as the psalmist recognizes, it is to God that we go. It is to God that we cry, and he is there to hear and to listen. And that's hopeful. And the most wonderful thing here as we look at this is that the one that we come to is our covenant God, Christians. Notice there, and we haven't mentioned this in a while, so perhaps if you're new here and perhaps have not heard this, look at verse 1. It says, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. See the word Lord there in verse 1? It's written in all capital letters. Well, that's a a way of signaling in our English translations that it is a, a translation of the covenant name of God, Yahweh. So that's who he's particularly talking to. My God. My God. Not just God. My God. Not just creator to whom I owe all allegiance, but redeemer who has brought me out of darkness and into his light, who has promised that he is my God and I am his child. That's the one Christian that we cry out to. It's out of that relationship that the psalmist cries out, O Lord. And it's out of that relationship that we do as well. Verse 2 says, O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. You see, what's going on here, we'll see this in just a second, is that the psalmist speaks from even a deeper depth than you might think. Because here, as it, differently than in so many psalms, the, the situation here, the depth of the, the despair of the psalmist here, is, is not a physical enemy that he's dealing with that's on his heels chasing him pursuing him it's not a feeling of despair in regard to a specific physical threat now this is there's not Saul pursuing David as we see in so many of the Psalms there's not an army coming against there are not uh, the evil ones coming against someone he says be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy The cry of the humbled, destitute sinner is here. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And he cries out for mercy, specifically, and the next verse reveals why. Before we get there, I have to say that that this is a plea that is becoming rarer and rarer in the church today. A voice, a cry that is less less often heard than it needs to be and should be. And not because the need is any less, 
Not because the need for mercy is any rarer. Not because man is somehow evolving into a better creature than he was back when the psalmist wrote centuries before Christ. Not because the danger is any less, but because the recognition of the danger is less today. It's not that the edge of the cliff is any further away or that the fall is any less lethal, but because many are blindfolded to the danger that they are in, and so rather than cry out for mercy, they skip blithely toward their eternal doom. That's because God's law is not being preached in God's house to God's people and to those who are outside of God's people. Because like in the days of Josiah, The book of the law of the Lord has been lost. The law is not being preached. Churches don't talk about sin. It's not politically correct to do so. But the psalmist knows his state. He knows his danger. He knows his need. And he knows the only place to go to find that need fulfilled. And so he cries out to the God of the covenant who is mighty to save, and he cries out, let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. God, hear me. And why is he praying for mercy? Why is he seeking mercy from God? Well, that's our second point, is that this psalm teaches us to confess our guilt. And that's the reason he needs mercy, is because he has guilt. I've said that the psalmist recognizes his danger and that many today don't, but we haven't yet said what that danger is. And so notice then his words in verse 3. Here's the danger. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who shall stand? You see, now we see what he is crying out to God about. His plea, his need for mercy is because of his sin and because of his recognition of it. This is one, beloved, this is one of the most sobering truths in the universe, one of the most sobering verses in all of Scripture. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, who should stand? This points to man's greatest need. It points to the greatest danger that he has. When we consider truths such as the fact that God is holy, his standards, his law demands absolute holiness. We saw that when we read the law this morning. You shall be perfect. Elsewhere he said, you shall be holy, for I am holy. We read that in our, in our New Testament reading. God is holy, and that's what he demands is holiness. That's what he can bear is holiness. He cannot abide unholiness in the least degree. Another truth is that God is just. He will not allow the guilty to go punished. Deuteronomy 32.4, 
says, all his ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. Further, God is omniscient. He knows all. He sees all. Nothing is hidden from his sight. Hebrews 4.13 says that. There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. We cannot hide our sin. Another truth is that God does not forget. He cannot forget. That would be a decrease in the knowledge of God. And God is perfect and infinite in his knowledge. And so the answer to the psalmist's question is frighteningly apparent. If God marks iniquity, that is, if he holds your sin against you, if he deals with you according to your sin, if he deals with you according to strict justice, you will not stand. If God does not, if God will not show mercy, there is no hope. We're talking about hope in this, but if God marks iniquity, there is no hope. None for you. None for me. None for anyone. Because no one can save you but God. You can't. I can't. Your family can't. Your friends can't. Your pastor can't. The only hope is to confess our guilt before God as the psalmist does in this psalm, which is a sure remedy. The only sure remedy, but a sure remedy. Because of what else Psalm 130 teaches us to do, and that is the third thing, and that is to comprehend the mercy of God. The mercy of God. Comprehend the mercy of God. For those who are as befouled, as stained, as corrupted in sin, as we all are, to comprehend the mercy of God towards sinners in Jesus Christ must be the greatest joy of our life. And it will be if we properly understand our condition outside of Christ. If we properly understand those things that we just look at, that God is holy, that God is just, that God is omniscient, that God does not forget. This psalm says to God's people, rejoice in him, people of God. As you are going up to worship the Lord your God, your Redeemer God, rejoice in him. Hope in him because with him there is forgiveness. With him there is mercy. And remember that this is the focus of the psalm to encourage one another with the reminder that God is a God of mercy. And as so often takes place in the psalms, the way that they're very often written, this, a a remembrance, a recognition of the grace and the mercy of God is the hinge on which the psalm turns. See, verses 1 through 3 say, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who should stand, who could stand. But with you there is forgiveness. 
This is the high point of the psalm, as well as the the pivot of the psalm. Apart from your mercy, Lord, there is only judgment. Apart from your mercy, there is only guilt. There is only shame. There is only hell. There is only, the book of Hebrews says, a fearful expectation of judgment. But with you, there is forgiveness. Do you feel the sweetness of that phrase? If you don't, maybe you haven't experienced it. But with you, there is forgiveness. Beloved, this morning, your sin, the depth of your sin is deep, deep, deep. But the mercy of God is an unplumbable depth, a bottomless well of grace and of mercy. Isaiah 118 says, Though your sins be like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Isaiah 55, 7 says, Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Ephesians 1, 7 says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins according to the riches of his grace. Ephesians 2.4 says that he has saved us because he is rich in mercy. And Romans 5.20 says that where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. In Psalm 30, look down at verse 7. It says there, With the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, or abundant redemption. There's that old children's song that says there's a fountain flowing deep and wide for any who will come to it. Psalm 86.5 says, For you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive and abundant in loving kindness to all who call upon you. And and even as I, I mentioned that we're that this psalm is teaching us to comprehend the mercy of God, you know, in a way we can't. In a way it's like telling us to lasso the moon or to count the stars. But let us resolve this morning, indeed, in all of our lives, as well as we can, to comprehend, even if we can't completely understand the mercy of God. For in Him there is forgiveness. To know As Paul said, what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. And to know how that forgiveness comes. A forgiveness that comes to any who makes supplication to him for it. For any who pray to him in faith in Jesus Christ and request it of him. Whoever, Paul said, will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. The mercy of God, the hope of God, is manifest for us in the sending of Christ. Our redemption is accomplished through the work of Christ. 
Let me add one other thing before we we move on here, and that is the the purpose for the forgiveness that God gives so freely. It's not so that we can just continue to go out and continue to sin willingly. Not so we can continue to sin that grace may increase. Not so we think that we can sin without consequence because we're God's children. Thinking like that shows a misunderstanding, a serious misunderstanding and really a lack of possession of this great salvation. Paul said, God forbid, when he asked the question, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Shall we continue to sin? Because God is so great, he is so loving, he is so merciful, we know he'll forgive us. So can we just go on living like we did? He says, God forbid. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Security in our sin is not the purpose for which God forgives us in Christ. The purpose, rather, is given here by the psalmist at the end of verse 4. He says, but with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. That you may be feared. Your salvation, child of God, this morning is so that you will love God. That you will honor God that you will revere God, that you will obey God, that you will worship God, that you will serve God. And so we're taught in this psalm to cry out to God. We're taught to confess our guilt. We're taught to comprehend the mercy of God. Fourthly, we're taught to commit to hope in God. Because God has done this great thing, we have a basis for the hope that he will do all that we need. Let me read this one couple of verses from from Romans 8. He says, what shall we... Paul, rehearsing all of these great blessings of, of salvation in Christ, he, he goes on and he says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us... Who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And so let us hope in God. Verse 5 says, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits And in his word, I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning, more than the watchman than watchman for the morning. Verse 5, he says, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits. That word there that's translated waits means to wait for something with eager and confident expectation. So really it's a synonym for the word hope. Which makes this verse, verse 5, a thoroughly hopeful verse. He's saying, I hope for the Lord. My soul hopes. In his word, I hope. We hope in God. Christian, hope in God. Hope in his word. I love that. In his word, I hope. His word that holds forth the reason for our confident expectation, our hope. The word that gives to us God's nature as gracious and merciful and loving. It tells us that he sent his son that we might have hope. That he gives us his spirit 
that he cares for us. It tells us of the assurance of his will for us. It tells us of the use of trials in our lives. That it's not bad, but it's good. The same thing with chastening as, the God, as God chastens us. And it tells us that there is nothing that can separate us from God and from his love. All of that is very hopeful, isn't it? And that's not to mention the future hope that we have of the return of Christ and his taking us to himself to be with him forever in a perfect state. The psalmist is saying here then that that his distress, in his distress, he confidently expects relief and comfort from the Lord. And beloved, we can and should do the same. But we do remember that part of the fruit of the Spirit is long-suffering, that it's patience, and that this word here in verse 5, though it can mean hope, it also means that we wait in hope. We learn that we wait for demonstrations of God's mercy. We wait in confidence. We wait in expectation. We wait in hope, and we wait in assurance, but we wait. Sometimes we have to wait. The posture of the redeemed, beloved, is like that of the Israelites on the night of the Passover with cloak tucked in their outer garments so they were free to move, with sandals on their feet and their staffs in their hands ready to be moved when the Lord says. But until then, they waited, knowing that God was going to deliver them. Ready, but waiting. Waiting to see what great salvation the Lord is going to accomplish. In verse 6, the psalmist tells of the nature of that waiting, that hoping. He says, My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. And then he repeats that to give it great emphasis. Probably referring to those, those who would man the watchtower on the walls of the city particularly those on the night shift. And though here, like I said, we're not looking at any particular physical enemy that they're on the lookout for, but the idea here is that they anticipate the morning, the relief of their work, the rest. It is with certainty, knowing that the morning will come, and it is with anxiousness in the sense that they are greatly desiring it to come. And that's how we are to wait for the Lord to hope in the Lord with great longing, with great dependence, and with great assurance, with great hope. And so the psalmist gives us a strong and beautiful picture here of hope in the midst of despair, particularly the despair of recognizing our sinfulness, of recognizing our need for mercy, And a hope that arises out of the knowledge of the mercy of the Lord. And the psalmist prays that God will hear his supplication. And he's confident that he does. Why? Because he hopes in God's word. In God's promise. Verse 7 says, O Israel, hope in the Lord. God's word is such a 
such a support for the weak. It is such a, a strong tower, a light, a lamp, food for the soul, a divinely sharp sword. And this is where our confidence rests, people of God, in the sure and eternal word of God, the promises of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then especially in the incarnate word who has come and fulfilled all of those promises, our Lord Jesus Christ, our blessed hope. And then there's one final thing that this psalm is meant to teach us today, and it flows out of the rest. We're taught to cry out to God, to confess our guilt, to comprehend the mercy of God, to commit to hope in God, and finally, to commend this course to others. To commend this course to others. Notice how the psalmist concludes and summarizes all of this in verses 7 and 8. He says, O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. The psalmist is so humbled by the depth of his sin and by the forgiveness that is with God, and so brought to a place of hope here by these things, that he waits on the Lord, he waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, that he turns now to his fellow Israelites with him going up the hill to worship, and, they say, and he says, O Israel... Hope in the Lord. You do the same. It is the most logical, the most obedient, the most helpful thing in the world to do. And why is that? Verse 7 says, For with the Lord there is steadfast love, steadfast mercy. And the word there is that glorious word chesed. Covenant faithfulness. The psalm began with an address, a cry to the covenant God. And here at the end, he is reminded that God covenantally loves his people. He has bound himself to his people. The covenant faithfulness, the loving kindness of God shown toward those to whom he stoops to save through Christ. Steadfast, unfailing love shown to sinners such as us. Hebrews 4.16 says, Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We come to God, beloved, with confidence that arises out of forgiveness and assurance of our acceptance at his throne. We come that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. And we need mercy, don't we? We need pardon. We need grace. We need to have our sins wiped out. And beloved, we have all of those things through Christ. Encourage one another with those words. Say to one another as the psalmist expands this out now to those that he travels with, O Israel, hope in the Lord. Whatever the situation, because with him there is plentiful redemption, full and free. So full that verse 8 says he'll redeem Israel from all his iniquities. That's what you have in Christ, beloved. Through his life and death, redemption from all your sins with 
you there is forgiveness, the psalmist says. Do you hope in the Lord this morning? Are you waiting on the Lord in hope? Do you hope in his promises? I hope so. I pray so. And so we see here, look at the the difference between the psalmist at the beginning of the psalm, crying out to God out of the depths, out of the chasm of his despair, and the difference between that and at the end of the psalm where he's encouraging others to hope in God because God is the one in whom we should place our hope. And the difference between the two is the realization that if the Lord should mark iniquities, no one would stand. No one would have any hope but that with you there is forgiveness. That's the difference. The great and glorious promise of the gospel in Christ. We receive this hope. We learn of this hope. We're reminded of this hope every single week week when we come together. When we come and go up to Mount Zion where we worship as we ascend the hill of the Lord, as we come into his covenantal presence, as we are reminded through word and through sacrament of the mercy of Christ towards sinners. And therefore, beloved, let us rejoice in that. Let us each, as the psalmist says, hope in the Lord. And to that we say, amen. Let's pray. Father, We thank you for the hope that we have in you. We recognize the hopelessness of our situation if we seek to apply any other remedy to it. We are reminded today that our hope is in you. We pray that we would reflect on that. We pray that we would rejoice in that. For any who may be hearing this this morning who have not trusted in Christ, we pray that you would give to them that great hope by bringing them to Jesus Christ in faith. Because we know that Christ is our great hope. He is our abiding hope. He is the hope that does not disappoint. May we rejoice in him today and always. Amen.